This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. The track session you're about to hear today is about connecting culture to kingdom. And one aspect of discipleship that comes out in this five-episode series is that discipleship has different contexts. Bobby Harrington, point leader for Discipleship.org, has co-authored a book with Alex Absalom on this topic called Discipleship That Fits. Well, Discipleship.org has partnered with Zondervan to release this sampler as a free ebook. Understand discipleship in the major forms it can take in terms of the group size from our personal walk with Christ to the crowds. Download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Discipleship That Fits. That's discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Discipleship That Fits. Today we're featuring an episode from Navigators Church Ministries and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Connecting Culture to Kingdom. The episode for today is called Connecting Culture to Kingdom Through the Art of Conversation, featuring Mary Schaller. I am Mary Schaller, and I'm going to be talking about connecting culture to kingdom through the art of conversation. And I am retired. I live in the Chicago area, and my background includes... Uh, being the president of an organization called Q Place. Q is for questions, and Q Place is an organization that mobilizes Christians to facilitate small group discussions with spiritual seekers so they can figure out what they believe about God and the Bible. And I did that for 10 years, and I've been retired for two. I continue to speak on this. Um, I'm not paid by Q Place. But I believe in the concepts of, um, of what Q-Place promotes to Christians and churches. And I think we're going to see a lot more of relational evangelism happening. And, and so it's so appropriate that I would be involved in the Navigators track because the Navigators are all about relational discipleship. And so, but it starts with relational evangelism. And one could argue that discipleship really starts the minute that you say hello to somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Jesus knew that because his disciples for a long time didn't know who he was or confess faith in him until they spent a lot of time with him. And nowadays we seem to bifurcate evangelism as pre-conversion and discipleship post-conversion. I'll I'll argue that discipleship is one just long continuum. And um, and Christians that continue to follow Jesus into this 21st century, especially in America, um, are, are being challenged to, to go to where the non-Christians are versus expecting those people to come into our churches. And so, but my background prior to running Q Place was mostly uh, capitalistic, entrepreneurial ventures in Silicon Valley. Um, I started several companies and, and saw the need for being an entrepreneur in kingdom work. And so at age 50, I went back and got my MDiv because as a, um, uh, as a child growing up, I grew up Catholic. Um, I married a Lutheran who was sitting in the back of the room, Paul Schaller. Um, we've been married 45 years, and together we became Episcopalians, and we ended up in an evangelical Presbyterian church, um, eventually ended up in the Assemblies of God and um, a non-denominational church. And so we've been through a few denominations, and by the time I had ended up in a church where I, my husband and I were running small group ministries between two startups that we were doing, I realized that God was calling me to ministry, and so I needed kind of the holes in my own theology to be cleaned up and ended up going to um, seminary and getting my MDiv and then ending up running this ministry. And so um, but we're going to talk today about the arts of spiritual conversation and, and, uh, and how, the, how that has been manifested. Um, before we do, though, I'm 
going to say a prayer, and I'm also going to introduce my daughter, who happens to be here. I have, I have three kids. Um, my daughter is head of curriculum for Awana, and she's here to find out how um, adult discipleship will influence children's discipleship and vice versa. And um, I have two other grown children and five grandchildren. And so let's pray. King Jesus, we, um, we thank you that, that you are our king. That, um, that, you, that you love us and that you love all those that have been made in, um, in the image of God and that you want to, you want each and every person on this planet to know you and that we are your plan. We, your followers, are the, the people that you have determined will be the ones that will Point them to you. And so, Lord, give us the skills that we need to do that, that will give all glory and honor to you, our King. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, my sister Terry, who was just celebrating the birth of her grandchild, had flown to Dallas for um, helping with the the mom and the baby for um, the first week of baby's existence. She had had a great week, and at the end of the week, she was getting on an airplane and flying back to Cleveland, where she lived, and she had a a seat on the the very back of the airplane, um, the window seat. And so as she went to the back of the plane and climbed over the guy in the middle seat next to her, she noticed that he was reading a Bible. She was curious about why he was reading the Bible. She was in a really good, talkative mood, and she said, are you a seminary student, or are you, you know, um, in Bible school? Um, you know, I'm curious about you reading the Bible. And he says, no, he says, um, I work in a sawmill. He said, but the Bible is very important to me, and so is the church. And this guy's in his mid-20s, and he then said, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You know, the plane had not taken off. They were still loading passengers. And um, my sister was, like, ready to hit the call button and say, change my seat. This wasn't Southwest where you get to pick. She was assigned that seat. And he didn't give her a chance to even answer that question. And he said, he said, "Um, and when you pray, do you pray with tears and great anguish. Because if you don't pray like that, he said, you're not saved and you're going to hell when you die. And uh, (laughs) she's like, whoa, is right. So, but, but he didn't give her a chance to answer that question either. He had his Bible out on his tray table and he's flipping through and proving exactly what he meant and how he believed. And he's so excited, he's spitting, you know. Um, and, uh, and my sister, you know, out of the two of us, she's, she's a nine on the Enneagram. And if you've ever done the Enneagram, those people are peacemakers. They, don't, they get along with everybody, you know. They, they don't want to, to make any waves. But here she was with this, um, this man who was talking nonstop for 20 minutes. Now the plane's in the air. And finally she had had enough. And, uh, and she said, stop. Don't tell me what to believe. She said, I, I will discover God on my terms. And, uh, and she said, I don't want to hear any more from you. This young man looked at her, and he burst into tears. And he put his head on the tray table, and he just, like, silently wept for probably 20 minutes. And my sister was like, no eye contact, you know, um, like, I just got to get through this next two hours. <laughs> and, and she, um, finally, he sat up, and, uh, and she just, you know, hoped that the rest of the trip would go without incident, and it did. And when she started to get out of her seat, he helped her with her suitcase down, and he said, um, I'm sorry that, um, that we can't agree you know, on Jesus and the Bible. And, uh, and she just, like, looked at him and thought, 
I'm getting up this jetway as fast as I can and hope that I never see this man again. And, and despite even his bad theology on prayer, you know, this young man loved Jesus and he, he loved the Bible and he was trying to share good news. But I would say for him, it didn't feel like good news what happened. And I know for my sister, it didn't feel like good news at all. And she, um, she called me when she got home and she said, you know, Mary, I know you're in the spiritual conversation business because I was running Q Place at the time. And she said, she says, why do people do that? You know, she says, that was bad news. And, uh, and so here you've got two people that experienced bad news that was supposed to be good news. And, uh, and so it saddened me because well-meaning Christians maybe aren't quite as, as, um, as extreme as this young man was. And, and I know even in my own life to be totally transparent that there have been times when maybe I wasn't quite as extreme as this guy was, but, but I think I was bad news talking about good news. And, uh, and so um, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, um, either to be the recipient of that or to be the deliverer of that. Um, so I want you to take just one minute in pairs and, and I want you to, to just connect with that story. Have you ever experienced bad news in the midst of good news related to the gospel? Um, so if you, if you were on either side of the equation and you're willing to share when you were that, um, I'd like you to do that. So go ahead. Okay. I know it was going to be short. So just out of curiosity, how many of you shared a story about you being the recipient of of some, some bad news about the good news. How many shared that kind of story? Okay, just a few. All right, how many of you honestly shared with somebody else about that you were bad news to somebody else about the good news? Okay, you know, I can notice that the hands are like, <laughs> either way, it's a little embarrassing. Okay, but we have a problem as the church. Okay, let's all be honest, all right? Christians are increasingly challenged in talking about God with people who believe differently. Okay, and it has these manifestations. All right, the unchurched don't want to talk um, with Christians about God. Okay, because they've had probably a bad experience, like my sister on the airplane. Um, you know, and, and, and there's tracks on street corners and the bullhorn man. We were at a musical uh, festival a couple years ago. And, and everybody's, you know, excited to see this particular artist. And, you know, there's a snake of a line, you know, waiting to get into the concert. And, and there's a man who was really super sincere about Jesus. And, um, and he, was, he was proclaiming the gospel, but he was ridiculed. And he was, um, you know, people were drinking. And, and it, was, it, was, it was really hard to watch. I felt such compassion for this man who obviously felt called to do that. But, um, but, but non-Christians are, are not that interested in a lot of cases for some bad, because of some bad experiences. And Christians are afraid to talk to people about God for some very good reasons. So I want to hear what you think are some of the reasons. Short phrases, okay? Why are Christians um, not wanting to talk about God with people who believe differently? It hurts family relationships. It can hurt family relationships. It, fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. Lack of clarity or knowledge. Lack of clarity and knowledge. People feel like they don't have enough biblical, you know, readiness to have those conversations. What else? You can get argumentative. You can get argumentative. And, and, and then it goes back to hurting the relationship. If you don't know how to get out of that. Yes. So we make assumptions that aren't true. So we, we think that maybe they've developed their beliefs farther than they have. Okay, Christians have a lot of really legitimate reasons why it feels hard to, um, to share the good news about Jesus. So here's you here you have, 
you know, when you use the word evangelism, for instance, um, immediately you've got something that Christians and non-Christians often agree upon. They don't like it, right? It's because it feels like this. And, uh, and so how do you get past that? Um, especially as a result of fewer, you know, conversations happening about God and people aren't coming to church. I mean, you can read the statistics. You, you, you heard a statistic this morning you know, the church attendance is dropping. You know, David T. Olson um, wrote a book called The American Church in Crisis, where he would say that only 15% of the American population is on church any given Sunday. Now, if you go to church on Sunday, you probably aren't seeing all the people that aren't in church, but you can see in a lot of our churches that there's much, many fewer people in, um, you know, in the seats. Um, you know, there's some, some, um, exceptions to that rule, but 65% of churches have either plateaued or reclined according, uh, declined according to Tom Rainier. Um, and, uh, and he asked the question, is the American church in a death spiral? So you, you don't have conversations going on on the outside, and you have fewer people hearing the gospel on the inside. So, you know, we're going to look at a few of the underlying causes, and, uh, and, and so there's three that um, a Barna study um, and you, you heard from one of the Barna spokespeople this morning. Um, that, and, and as a matter of fact, though, um, I also want you to, if so, some of you have already looked, and we're in session three, and so there's a, there's a few places to take notes um, in, uh, in, this, in this handout. So what Barna says is that there's, there's three underlying causes. One of the causes is secularism. You know, Barna says that um, Americans that fit the post-Christian category in 2013 was 37%. But in 2018, it was 44%, which means that that's a 7% difference in five years. That's a, that's a huge drop. People are thinking less about God. So secularism is one. We could go into a lot more detail, but we, we're going to move on. The second one is relativism. You know, Americans, only 35% think that moral truth is absolute. 35%, which means that 44% say it's relative. 21% admit never having thought about it. Um, and 91% say the best way to find yourself is by looking inside of yourself. 79% of the people say people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 57% say whatever's right for you in your life is the only truth that you can know. 60% believe it's extreme to attempt to convert others to your faith. Now, all of these statistics um, are coming out of um, one of the Barna studies that's come out. And if you're really interested in this, um, it's a fabulous book, um, Spiritual Conversations in a Digital Age. And so the next couple slides are going to be coming from there if you want to buy it on the Barna website. But um, so, so that's relativism. You've got secularism, relativism, and you've got the digital age. Take a guess how many hours a day... The, um, the average young adult spends on their smartphone. How many, how many think it's two hours a day? How many think it's three hours a day? How many think it's four hours a day? How many think it's five hours a day? Five hours a day. And yet, 43 million people, Americans, uh, have um, have said that they're lonely. 43 million. It's one of the, the biggest health crises, according to um, uh, Cigna Healthcare. Um, that loneliness is 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 endemic in our in our society, and especially among young people who are the most connected generation. But we saw again this morning that relationally, they are less connected than previous generations. So, um, you know the. One in five people are saying that they're lonely and have only an average of five close friends, and they're all pretty similar to themselves. So 
so they're not, inter, you know, they're not connecting with people that, um, that believe differently than they do on politics, on religion, on, you know, a lot of different um, aspects. So what I want you to see, though, is how many conversations about faith are happening and, um, and what Christians are reporting as far as how many conversations they have in a year. So if you look at this data, basically it says that three out of four Christians are what they'd call reluctant conversationalists, which means that 75% of Christians are having less than 10, like nine or below, spiritual conversations a year. And, and this is just spiritual conversations with, with anybody, which means that only one out of four are what they call eager conversationalists, where they have um, 10 to... 10 to 50, um, that's this group, 17%, and, um, and 10% are having um, 50 or more spiritual conversations. So why don't they? This is what the data says. The reason that um, Christians don't want to talk about faith is that religious conversations always seem to create tension or arguments. That's the top reason. The reason that the um, people that don't have um, a faith in Christ they say that they're not religious and they don't care about these topics. Some of the other reasons is they're not sure. Um, they're put off on how religion has been politicized. Um, I don't feel like I know enough. That, that got brought up um, when you guys were giving reasons. Um, I don't have enough religious knowledge or on spiritual topics. Um, I don't want to be known as a religious person. And then um, something that's interesting in millennials is that they're afraid that people will see them as a fanatic. And um, people that rank themselves as liberals would say that um, they, religious language and jargon feels um, cheesy and out, outdated. And, um, and, and Christians, practicing Christians, say they've been hurt by religious conversations in the past. They've had a bad experience. So... The thing is, that's the bad news, but the good news is that people that have had spiritual conversations um, say that they've had a big change in their life as a result of a spiritual conversation. 38% um, of Christians say someone came to faith in Jesus after having a spiritual conversation with them. 38%. Now, that should be an encouragement to give you confidence to want to have another spiritual conversation. Um, nine out of ten people who experienced a life change as a result of that spiritual conversation said the conversation was with someone that they knew well. God bless you. Seven out of ten people say that that life change was a result of multiple conversations with the same person, 42%, um, or with um, more than one person, 27%. And most of those conversations, 73%, happened in person, not over text or email. So what makes an eager conversationalist? Don't you want to know? Like, what is it that makes that one out of four, what, what do they look like that the other, you know, three out of four don't look like? And, and here's what they are. These are the characteristics of an eager, eager conversationalist. The first one is a sense of personal responsibility. They, um, they feel the, the call of the Great Commission. They feel like this is their job. Jesus said, go make disciples. Second is that they have a belief in salvation through Jesus alone. They believe that. They live that. The third one is, um, is that they engage in good spiritual practices. They read their Bible. They, um, they pray on a regular basis. They're in fellowship with other Christians. Fourth, they, um, they have an intentionality and a readiness. They, they're not afraid of a, a spiritual conversation. They, they want to have them. They're ready to have them. And, uh, and so when, when God puts that person in their pathway, they engage rather than walk away or are afraid of it. And the fifth one is that they have confidence coupled with positive experiences. So they're like, I can do this. I can handle this. 
Now what we're going to do for um, the rest of the time is, is the first three, hopefully your church is giving you a sense of personal responsibility. And they're giving you um, the, um, the confidence in your belief in salvation in Jesus alone. And, and they're encouraging you to have good spiritual practices. So we're going to talk more about how you can be intentional, ready, and confident. And I'm going to read this, um, this passage um, from Romans 12, 1, 1 and 2, um, from the message version. Because um, Paul says it so beautifully. He says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and you're walk around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Isn't that like practical in terms of how we should live. So what, what's it going to take to get from relational um, or reluctant conversationalist to eager conversationalist? Um, and I think it's a paradigm shift in our thinking. Because here's, here's the first insight of, um, of what I think is happening out there. Um, the church, this is insight number one. There's going to be three major insights. And so if you want to write these down, Insight number one is the church tends to use a telling approach to evangelism. And it's not working well in some places. So the question is, what do you mean by a telling approach? A telling approach is, um, is one where you're doing all the talking. Um, you, think, you can think about it as, you know, the sage on the stage, the, the person. You, you, you get a telling approach in the classroom, in the public schools. You get a telling approach. Oftentimes, um, you've got to on Sunday where there's one person talking, you know, the preacher, and everybody else is listening. So it's an expert or a teacher that's dispensing information to another. This is not bad, okay? Hear this, not bad, especially you pastors in here, okay? It's appropriate, okay? It would be chaos if you had everybody talking on Sunday or you had everybody talking in a classroom. So it's not as though it's bad, okay? The question is, does the telling approach work as well here? How many people say yes? Everybody else says no, or you're asleep, right? It is after lunch. Um, it is the last session of the day, or one of the last sessions. So, so why doesn't it work well here? Okay, again, phrases. What, why doesn't it work well when you're, when you're sitting in a coffee shop or at that beautiful lake that they're sitting at? It appears that you don't care for the person? Yeah, you don't care about them. Okay. All right. It appears that you're uncaring because you're doing all the talking. Yeah. In general, people want to be heard. People want to be heard. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's no application given uh, from the stage. There's no way to carry that out when you're having situations. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second so that you can hear a brief message from our sponsors. Here they are. Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who actually had proven results, would just share with you exactly how to make disciples? Hi, I'm Doug Burrier, a decision scientist and a real-life disciple maker. This year, I'm discipling six of my neighbors. That's crazy. They don't even go to our church. My friends and I made 1,392 disciples last year. So if you're tired of hearing the same old blog and keynote messages, droning on about the why, the need, and the theory, I want to invite you to hear the simple how-tos that have bunches of churches and hundreds of people making thousands of disciples all around the world. 
how to recruit, how to get them to love reading the Bible, how to transform them, how to run a meeting like a real proven agenda, how to make individual disciples in a group setting, how to give people the wonderful, abundant life that God promised them. This is what I found in Sustainable Discipleship. It's not materials. It's not another program. It's a simple, repeatable set of how-tos. If you're ready for something proven, practical, and different, visit sustainable-discipleship.com. That's sustainable-discipleship.com. The team will be happy to share with you everything God shared with them. All right, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. I think uh, people can read into your ego and they can see that sense of I'm right, you're wrong kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it feels a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? Yeah. But you know and you're going to dispense that on somebody else. It's, it's relationally difficult. So here's the second insight. An asking approach draws people near and builds relationships. Okay, so we're contrasting a telling approach and an asking approach. And, and what do I mean by that? In an asking approach, you're a guide or a facilitator to others' learning. You're kind of the guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage. Let's go a little bit deeper with that. Those of us with a bad <laughs> The telling approach can be impersonal, like you said, um, whereas the asking approach can be more relational and, and, and personal. Um, the telling approach is great whether you're talking to one person or a thousand. It, it works. And, um, and in an asking approach, it can be more likely to meet individual needs. It scales well when you're telling. Um, the asking approach is much more people-intensive when you're doing something one-on-one or one-on, you know, a few. And probably the reason that, that Christians are, are most fearful of it is it's messy, all right? You, you don't know what's going to happen, okay? And as a result, you've lost control, and we, we do tend to like control. So I'm going to show you a video that you just got to see a little sneak preview of, and it has nothing to do with faith. Okay, it has to do with um, just um, how the telling versus the asking approach works um, to change a bad habit. And the bad habit that they're going to talk about is smoking. And, um, and, and what works in just allowing people to be open to changing a bad habit. Okay, so let's look at this, this um, behavior science example. Those of us with a bad habit have probably heard all the guilt, pleading, and logic for change a million times. We're prepared to resist and combat every logical or emotional attack. Especially smokers. More than most anti-addiction, they've seen the anti-smoking ads, the horrific images of cancerous lungs, everybody's told them a hundred times to just stop, and does it work? Of course not. So, let's look for BS you can use. Alright, first let's find some smokers and a couple of confederates. In the control condition, we'll have Cole and Josh try the traditional lecture approach. Excuse me. Hey, no smoking back you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Josh, you know we can get some help? If you want to quit, then... Hardly any takers. Thank you. 90% of the smokers responded resentfully. Just under half even took the paper when it was forced into their hand. So reminding people of something they already know but don't want to think about didn't work. Now here comes the BS you can use. This time we'll have our intrepid confederates try something different. We'll replace a tired lecture with an influential question. This time, Cole approaches the subject with a fake cigarette and asks for a light. Can I borrow a light? Why not? Why? This is fascinating. The adults are now telling the boy why he shouldn't smoke. That's even better. Now that the smoker's making the anti-smoking arguments, the kids turn it back to the smoker with an influential question. Don't you care about us? What about you? Just 
Look at the body language this time as compared to the control condition. You don't see defensiveness, you see openness. Exactly. In this condition, close to 90% of subjects not only lectured the boys about the evils of smoking, but committed to trying to quit themselves. And it gets even better. One of them saw the boys later and came back to continue the ramp. Every time somebody hangs you or you see it, or, or you see somebody smoking, I don't know about what. But I'm going to quit for two. I have to. Otherwise, I would die in air. Now, the skeptical scientist in me wants to ask, so was that motivation just temporary? Sure, they pocket the paper, but do they actually do anything? Good question. When Ogilvy and Mather conducted the experiment in Bangkok, calls to the quit line actually went up 40% wow. on the day of the experiment. Wow. We don't know if they actually quit, but we do know that their motivation lasted past the interaction. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about this. Why did that work? I see a few things going on here, but let's focus on one of them. When you're trying to influence people who need motivation and not information, don't offer more information. Your only hope is to avoid provoking what psychologists call reactants. The best way to do that is not with speeches, but with questions. Give them a safe environment to explore motivations they already have. Exactly. The kid's approach allowed the smoker to feel emotionally safe which allowed them to acknowledge their own ambivalence about their habit. So, I have to reintroduce them to values they already believe in by tricking them with a cute kid or a puppy. Close. <laughs> Stop forcing them to take the wrong side of the argument by lecturing them. Instead, use questions to help them explore their own motivations at their own pace. Wasn't that funny? So he, he brings up a a point of, um, of reactance. And, um, and here's what the definition of reactance is. <laughs> now it doesn't want to get off that. It's a motivational reaction to offers persons rules or regulations that threaten or eliminate specific behavioral freedoms. Reactance occurs when a person feels that someone or something is taking away their choices or limiting the range of alternatives. Reactance can occur when someone is heavily pressured to accept a certain view or attitude. You know, an example there is, you know, the sign that says, don't throw stones, and uh, the sign is full of people that threw stones. So, so have, have you ever experienced reactance to something? Like, you know, the minute somebody tells you to do something, you want to do it? Or, or tells you something that's, that's true that you are not ready to receive? So think about that as you're talking to somebody who, um, who may feel when you are taking a telling approach that you're sending them the opposite direction that you want to send them. And that the questions tend to not be um, as, as dictatorial and therefore they, um, they allow for a dialogue to take place. So here's the third insight. That an asking approach is great, but you need more skills because it's more relational and inter interactive. Okay? Is when you start taking an asking approach, it's almost like dancing. Okay? You have a partner, and, um, and you may be really good at what you do in terms of dancing, but if they're not following your steps, it's a messy process. People's toes get injured, and there's, um, there's, a, there's a lack of rhythm to it. And so that's why people take dance lessons together, right? So that they can learn how to anticipate the other person's moves. And so you have to anticipate your steps, and you have to anticipate your partner's steps. And so what, um, what our ministry, um, with our mission of mobilizing Christians to start spiritual small groups where the majority are not Christians— um, that's, that's a tricky thing because Christians are afraid that people are going to say things that they don't know how to respond to. So what, what we learned is that we, we needed to, to help these Christians with some skills. And, um, and we developed um, these, we didn't develop them, we identified nine skills that we saw in the life of Jesus. And here are the, um, the nine, and you've got them on your handout. Um, 
and those are noticing. You know, Jesus noticed people in his path. He noticed Zacchaeus up in the tree. He, um, he noticed the, the woman at the well and, and knew what was going on with her because, you know, he had insight from the Holy Spirit. Um, praying. Notice these, these are the first skills. These first three are, um, are what we call getting ready. They don't require anything on your part of saying anything. They, um, you know, oftentimes when we, when we start talking to people about God, we then go back and ask, um, instead of talking to people about God first, what if we talk to God about people first? You know, because then we can hear what God's doing in that life of that person. So praying before sharing is, is, a, is a definite plus um, as we invite God into that process. Listening. Um, people see listening as a form of love. Um, Jesus knew how to listen with even his body. When a woman touched him, he knew that somebody had touched him and was, was tapping into his power. Asking questions. Jesus asked more than 300 questions in the, um, in the four Gospels. And every question that he, he asked, uh, or every question people asked him, uh, he asked another question in response to their question. So asking questions, in the, in the, in the book of Mark, um, Mark 8, you'll see that Jesus asked 16 questions. You'll see that the first conversation that, um, that God had with Adam was four questions. Why did God ask Adam questions? He knew where he was. He knew who told him he was naked. Um, you know, he knew the answers to that question. So you have to say, why, why, is, why is the God of the universe that knows everything asking questions? And, and I believe it's because he wanted people to think. He wanted, he wanted Adam and Eve to own, you know, their behavior. So um, loving is at the center of this tic-tac-toe grid because all of these skills are demonstrating love to somebody that's, um, that's curious about God. Um, welcoming people um, shows a tremendous amount of love, regardless of what they believe. These are called, um, you know, uh, getting ready. These are called getting started. And these are called keeping it going. Because if the conversation gets going and you can put those people in a, a setting in which there can be discussion among several people, um, knowing how to facilitate those conversations or getting them to serve together so that they can see God in action, and, um, and sharing is still on this list, but, um, but it's, it's with a lot of relational trust being built by these other skills instead of this, um, this grid which says that if you're taking a telling approach, you're doing all the talking. You don't need all those relational skills. So, um, so Henry Cloud, um, some of you know him as the Boundaries you know, author, and, um, and he's got this great quote. We trust people we know under, who understand us, our context, our situations, our needs, what makes it work for us and what makes it break down. When they truly understand us, listen and care, we are more than willing to open ourselves up to them. On the other hand, if people don't get us um, or they, they don't feel like we get them, their entire system begins to close down. And, um, and so, so these skills are ones that, um, that allow people to... to um, to, to build trust in a relationship to open up. So the church tends to use a telling approach for evangelism. An asking approach draws people near and builds relationships. And when you take an asking approach, you need more skills because of relational interactive. Um, we're going to spend the rest of our time on one of the most important arts, and that is asking questions. Okay, And so, um, so I'm going to take a, um, a brief pause and, and I wondered if, you, if you're tracking with this, if you have a comment or a question. Yes? Yeah, the importance of noticing and listening, not as a means to an end, but valuing people for who they are. So in Europe, what we do with workers, we eliminate the word evangelist. We just don't use it. It's right. an added component. Yep. It's caring about people as people, not projects. And it has to be, if you don't think of evangelism, it's a natural outflowing of who you are. That's what you're going to bring to the table. Yes. You know, a better E-word um, is, is engagement. Mm -hmm. So 
It's not as though evangelism is not important. It is. Um, but the good news is something that unfolds slowly over time as you build the relationship. It's not a one-time presentational approach. Not that that is not effective sometimes. But, um, but in, if, if you are with people for a long period of time, they're more likely to receive what you have to say. And so, um, yeah, noticing is, is a simple skill that can produce amazing results. One time I was in a bank and I saw how the woman's name was spelled, and it was spelled like the Rebecca in the Bible. And, um, and I just asked a simple question about her name. And she was so ready to talk that she told me a lot of her story right there in the bank as I was doing a bank wire. Like it was, finally I said, you know, do you want to just go out and have coffee afterward? Because, you know, it was feeling kind of awkward right there in the bank. And she did. And I learned a lot more about her story and was able to share some about Jesus. So um, the therapists know this. You know, if, if you've ever been to a therapist, you know, what is, what is their skill? It's asking questions. It's knowing the right questions to ask. You know, they have to have, besides their education, they have to have 3,000 hours in most states in, um, in how to, um, to, to, to uh, you know, help people, counsel them. And, um, and so in this short amount of time we have left, I'm just going to give you kind of a, a teaser of, of what a good question looks like. And, um, and here's, here's some characteristics of good questions. First and foremost, they originate from curiosity, genuine interest. Okay, people know when you care and when you don't care. Okay, and so they don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've heard that before. Um, so, so you've got to genuinely be interested in who they are, and um, and and it's got to be sincere. They've they've got to be open ended. Okay, because. An open-ended question requires more than, you know, a one-word answer. And so instead of a a yes or no question, you know, a question that begins with why or what or how um, is going to give you a lot more opportunity to to engage with somebody. Um, They're concise. You know, if you ask a question that's, you know, 25 words or more, then um, then chances are they're going to lose you before you get the question out of your mouth. Um, they need to connect with what's being discussed. You can't, out of the blue, ask, ask them something you know, that, uh, that doesn't make sense. And, um, and, and lastly, you need to, to help people feel safe and understood. Um, you know, one of my favorite questions is, is something like, um, how are you, this is like such a simple question, but I can't believe what, what it produces. How are you doing, really? Okay, I, I had a lovely lunch with a friend last week, and we had a lovely visit with another friend, and the other friend left, and I said, how are you doing, really? And, um, and she kind of like, you could see her, like kind of like relax, and she burst into tears, and she told me how she was really doing. She was not doing well. And, uh, and, and I ended up staying another hour to hear about how she was really doing. And so um, here, here's some things you don't want to do when you're um, asking questions. Because just because you're asking a question doesn't mean that it's a good question. You know, um, you, you do want to make sure that they don't sound like a test, you know, that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. You, um, you do, again, want to avoid yes or no questions because there's nowhere to go when somebody answers the yes or no question. Um, you want to avoid of, of, uh, leading the witness, I'll say, you know, where, where you know the answer you want them to give you. You know, um, does this passage make you feel angry or sad or, you know, um, something that's just going to, to kind of confirm what you want them to say, and, um, and you want to make sure not to do that. Don't ask multiple questions, like, all in one breath, again, because it's complicated. It doesn't, it doesn't help. And, and, and this one's maybe not as obvious, and it's harder for us as, um, as human beings, because we don't like silence. Don't fill the silence after your question. You know, had I, had I filled the silence after I asked my friend the question, you know, I might have missed what she was going to tell me because 
she took a minute. You could tell in her mind, can I trust her? Should I say this? You know, um, because it was sensitive information. And so sometimes that takes a few minutes. Don't fill it in. Um, allow that person to, um, to, to sit with it. And the most important thing is, and this is a do, not a don't, is discover people's story. People have a story. They want to tell you their story if they know that you will actually listen to their story and affirm their story, the good, bad, the ugly, you know. And so, um, but so, so here's another like tip, um, and that is um, there's level of communications, all right? We're going to talk about what those, those five levels are. Um, good questions connect with a person's life story to build strong relational trust. But the level of communications is, um, is going to depend on where you are with the relationship and how comfortable you are and go into deeper levels and how comfortable they are. Um, level one is the facts, you know. Um, those are pretty easy. That's used to be what's in the newspaper. Now it's more opinion than facts a lot of times. But, um, but facts, you know, like the, the Nationals won the World Series. That's a fact. Um, Level two is opinions. Um, usually it's other people's opinions, you know. Um, my, my friend wanted to see the Nationals win. Um, level three, you're going down one level deeper. It's not their opinions, it's your opinions, okay? So this is a little bit more tender. If you share your opinion and somebody trashes that, they're not gonna be willing to like sell, give you another chance potentially if it's a new relationship. If, if they've discounted your opinion. Um, level four, you know, feelings. When you start sharing how you feel about something that, that's beyond an opinion, it's, it's a feeling, you, um, you wanna make sure that you're going to be received well. Um, and, um, and so you've gotta make sure that you are that safe person to them sharing their feelings. And lastly is um, needs and desires, you know, um, their hopes, their dreams, their disappointments. Um, are they willing to share those with you? So I've got a question for you, and I want you to, to break up in pairs again. Um, and this would be good to stay in twos if you can. How easy is it for you to have conversations that go to the deeper levels? Because that's gonna be your limitation you know, you, you can't control how deep they can go, but you can answer how deep are you willing to go and um, what keeps you from going deeper in, um, in, converse, in conversations in general and specifically in spiritual conversations. Okay, we're going to take five minutes to do that. Um, what were some of the responses to what... What were the reasons why it's hard to go deeper to these lower levels? What what is it that um, that prevents you from going there? Trust. Trust of the person that you're speaking with. Yeah. What else? Trust the big one. Yes. Oh, one thing that I mentioned them is uh, discernment is an issue as well because I might not necessarily want to overshare certain issues or desires that I have if it's going to cause somebody else to be a stumbling block. Right, right. Yeah, so your sensitivity to their ability to receive, right? Fear of conflict. Okay. No, oh, yes, that's a good one, busyness. If the other person isn't using listening skills. <laughs> right, if they're not listening, you don't want to go there because it's like pearls to swine, right? <laughs> you, you know, you, you feel in like you're not respected for what you're saying, and so you don't want to go deeper. Those are, those are all really good reasons. Um, you know, I'm just giving you a, a very tiny glimpse of, um, of the curriculum that um, QPlace has developed. And, um, and so if you're interested in going you know, into more exploration of these nine arts. Um, there's resources that um, that you can you can buy. Um, one of them is um, is a book that um, that's just an overview on these nine arts of spiritual conversations. 
Um, we were selling that at the navigator table down um, on the first floor. But, um, but there's an opportunity for you to, um, to also consider buying these other two resources. And actually, the, the most comprehensive is this one that has four lessons on every one of those nine arts that you can use in a small group or, you know, a triad or with a partner to, um, to, to like, say, I'm listening. You know, no, um, why don't we listen? Okay, um, why, why, do, why is listening important? Why don't we listen? Um, what is genuine listening? And, um, and how can you listen? So if you want to like take a, a small group like the um, a pregnancy, several pregnancy centers um, have used these to train their volunteers on how to get better at those nine practices and um, have done that for like a year in, in their staff meetings. You have an opportunity, um, if you're interested, in getting this book called A Primer. Um, it's a small group resource that you can get for free if you fill out that card. Q-Place has asked me to... Um, you know, have you fill out those cards, and um, and Dennis over here will um, will give you if you fill out a card, you get one of these for free, and um, and it's basically answering the question why noticing is important, why listening is important, why praying, and so on. So um, so those are resources, but um, I also want to make sure you know um, what um, what other resources exist. If you have never seen this blog, I would highly recommend it. It's, um, it's called leadingwithquestions.com. And this guy sends out blogs like every three, four days on asking questions specifically. And, um, and he's got all of the leading, like, you know, the people that, um, you know, I don't know where he gets all these people because he's been doing it for years. But there is such good resources there as far as how to ask good questions. When it's Father's Day or Mother's Day, he'll have um, questions, um, you know, you could ask your mother or, you know, ask your daughter. Um, it, there's just, he's, he's a very creative um, blogger. Um, another resource that I highly recommend, again, is the Complete Book of Questions. This is a thousand one questions, and they're ranked by, um, by level of, um, of intimacy. And so, you know, the first 100 are pretty simple, like, you know, are you a hugger? You know, they're really good icebreaker questions. You know, we take this on vacation sometimes because it, it really allows you to have some great conversation. So it's written by Gary Poole. You can get it on Amazon. And, um, and finally, I'm just going to um, finish with the story of my sister, okay? And, um, and the story is this, that... Um, what if, you know, we could rewind the tape and, um, and my sister gets on this airplane and, um, and she sits down to this same guy, um, next to the same guy, and, um, and what if she says the same question to him, and that is, you know, um, what's the deal with the Bible, basically, you know, um, and what if he said, you know, the, the Bible's very important to me and, um, and so is my church, and, um, and he, 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 basically hits the ball back over the net and he says, how about you? How about you? You know, is the Bible important to you? Because if he had, he would have discovered that my sister, who hadn't read the Bible for most of her life, had recently um, been given a one-year Bible and she was in the middle of the one year. And she was fascinated with what the Bible had to say. And she was very ready and interested in talking about the Bible. And, um, and my guess is that for the two hours that they were on that plane, there might have been a great give and take, asking questions, listening. By the end of it, they might have been exchanging emails and, um, and, and you know, wanting to continue the conversation because that, he would have tapped right into where she was. And, and how many times have we, you know, missed asking that important question that we learn later we should have asked because it would have opened up something pretty spectacular in terms of what God might have been doing between that interaction. And so I, I, would, I, would, I would challenge you to, um, to, to think about getting good at asking questions, and it takes practice, okay? It's like playing a musical instrument or, um, or a sport. You know, you may not be a good question asker or listener or noticer, you know, today, but, um, but you will get better if you practice. And, um, and to know where you are on these nine skills, um, in your packet, um, some of the, the next steps are you could 
take a spiritual conversation assessment. It takes about five minutes online. And you could find out you know, what you're good at and what you're not so good at, um, how ready you are to maybe have ongoing spiritual conversations in a small group. And so I would encourage all of you that the, getting better at these arts is something that could maybe impact your you know, relationships with your friends, your marriage, your, your you know, children. Because when you start getting better at those, you see God more at work because of the, the work that he's doing in you and giving you these skills. And so thank you for being here today. Um, we are now a little over time. And if you want one of those books, um, Dennis can help you. And, um, and, and God bless you. Um, Lord Jesus, I pray your blessing over each person here. May you give them the skills to be able to interact with others in a way that makes them very eager conversationalists. Um, may your grace be upon them. And we pray this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. That's it for today's episode. Check out the sampler for Bobby Harrington's book with Alex Absalom called Discipleship That Fits. Download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Discipleship That Fits. Thanks for listening. Until next time.